Uh, great morning, everyone. I hope you're as enthusiastic as they are. <laughs> let, me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> oh, most high God, utterly good, totally powerful, most omnipotent, most merciful, most just, deeply hidden, yet most intimately present among us, perfection of both beauty and strength. Father, our ability to grasp who you are is so limited. We cannot ascend to your lofty heights, but Lord, we desire to know you better to behold you, our God, as you really are. And so help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to, to see something more of you, to behold you, that we might worship and adore you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. I learned that children's song as an adult, and I thought at the time it was pretty catchy. <laughs> the only problem with it is, and I'm sorry if this ruins the song for you, it's not actually true. When it comes to God's greatness, we naturally tend to think about what God can do. And it's a pretty standard thing for us to say, isn't it? Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. He is so powerful. There's nothing he can't do. He can do anything. But we all know, don't we, some abilities are actually weaknesses. So the fact that you and I can break our legs implies weakness, doesn't it, rather than strength. Actually, to be unable to do some things can be a strength, even though it's expressed as an inability. So, for example, the Bible says God cannot deny himself, and that is a really good thing. If God had the ability to do that, if he had the ability to deny himself, to disown his own existence and character, reality itself would fall apart. So what we're going to do over the next five Sundays in the run-up to Christmas, we're not going to be thinking about things God can do, but things God can't do. Five things God can't do. And my hope and prayer as we think about these five things God can't do is that it will help us to behold our God with clarity, to see just how much better and more wonderful he is than we ever could have imagined. As we behold our God together, I hope that that will move us to awe and amazement and adoration of our God. 
I, I want you to know right at the outset as we start this series, there are not going to be loads of practical things for you to go home and change about your Christian life. There are practical implications, what we're going to see, as we'll, we'll see them as we go along. But that's not the main thing. The main thing, the main application, will be what we have just sung. Oh, come, let us adore him. That's going to help us, I hope, because at Christmas especially, we tend to think the Christian life is to be lived busily. The Christian life is, is to, to get moving and get moving fast. But Jesus says that the way for us to live as his people, and especially so at Christmas, is to slow down enough so that we can enjoy and adore Jesus Christ. And this series is all about helping us to do that, to adore and worship him together. The other thing that you need to know about this series is that it is going to stretch us. It's going to stretch the limits of our language and the limits of our understanding. What we're going to discover about God, I hope you will feel this most Sundays, what we're going to discover about God is it's going to make your brain fall over. That's because the God that we are talking about, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, our God is utterly beyond us. We began our service this morning, Chris Wynn read from Isaiah chapter 40, where we're called to behold our God. And throughout Isaiah 40, Isaiah is showing us what God is like, and he uses a series of questions and implied answers. And what is God like? Well, Isaiah shows us that our God is like no one else. Verse 14, question. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Answer, no one. Question, who taught him the right way? Answer, no one. Question, who was it that taught him knowledge? Answer, no one. Question, who showed him the path of understanding? Answer, no one. And it culminates in verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Answer, no one. There is nothing and no one like our God. He is incomparable. He's incomparable in terms of scale. The, the universe, the whole universe is so small compared to him that he can measure the heavens with the span of his hand. He's incomparable in terms of time. He is the everlasting God without beginning or end. He's incomparable in terms of knowledge. No one has ever taught him anything. And yet he knows everything. More on that next Sunday. 
Sometimes I think our, our tendency is to think of God as just a bigger, more powerful version of us. But God is not just more than us. He is in a league of his own. See, at the heart of the universe is a fundamental distinction between the creator and the created, between the infinite and the finite, between God and everything else. God is in a category all on his own. He is not just different to us in degree, but in kind. He's not just higher up the food chain. He's different gravy altogether. He is utterly unique beyond all comparison. Now, in saying that, I'm not denying that we as human beings are made in God's image. We are. But what it means is that when we're trying to understand what God is like, we do not start with ourselves and work up, projecting onto God just bigger versions of everything we see in ourselves. Instead, we start with what God has said about himself. And we discover that we are made in his image. We are like God with respect to some functions and faculties. We, we rule the world like God. We relate to God and others. But what we also see is that God is just fundamentally other. He is the infinite and incomparable God. Which means that us trying to get our heads around what God is like... It's like trying to fit all of the water in the world into a shot glass. That's what we're trying to do this morning. Impossible. We will never, ever fully understand what God is like. We will never entirely or exhaustively comprehend God. If we could, he wouldn't be God. But the good news is that even though we cannot know God fully, we can know God truly. Because God has chosen to reveal himself to us in ways that we can understand. Like a, a parent simplifies their language in order to talk to their toddler child. That's what God does with us. He condescends to use human language, human figures of speech to describe himself to us. In order to reveal himself to us, he accommodates himself to our limited understanding. And he does that partly by making comparisons. So we see that, right? Even in Isaiah chapter 40, get this, the incomparable God uses comparisons to tell us that he is incomparable. God speaks of himself using bodily language as having hands to measure the waters, as having fingers to span the heavens, even though, strictly speaking, as spirit, God does not have a body with fingers or hands any more than the foot of a mountain has toes or the mouth of a river, ha river has lips. But of course, those comparisons, especially those human comparisons, are fitting for God to use, aren't they? 
Because God's supreme act of communication and revelation to us, the ultimate accommodation to our limited understanding, is the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas. Now, if you're new to church, you might not know that word, incarnation. Don't worry if you don't, because you've probably eaten something that will help you. So, um, can anyone tell me what this is? Chili con carne. Chili, literally, with meat. And Jesus Christ is God incarnate. To put it crudely, Jesus is God with meat on, with flesh. Jesus Christ is the God who became human, flesh and blood. The incarnation is totally unique to Christianity, that the God who is utterly beyond us became like us. That the God who we cannot compare became comparable to us, became one of us. So as we think about these five things that God cannot do, we're also going to consider how, in the incarnation, God does the very things he cannot do. I told you it would make your brain fall over. We're going to marvel together at the lengths our God has gone to for us and for our salvation. Oh, come, let us adore him. So Aileen is going to come and read the Bible to us, and then we're going to think about the first amazing attribute of God, that he cannot be seen. So God cannot be seen. Aileen's going to read to us from 1 Timothy. So open your Bibles and find that up. Um, two readings this morning, and they're both in First Timothy. The first one's in chapter 1, second one's in chapter 6. If you're using the church Bibles, first one's on page 1191, and the second one on 1194. So, First Timothy chapter 1 first, verses 15 to 17. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Chapter 6, verses 11 to 16. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made good confession in the presence of my witness. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, 
I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Aileen. Things can be invisible, or at least unseen, for a whole host of reasons. So car keys have an extraordinary ability to make themselves invisible at just the moment you need them, usually when you're running late. In that case, the reason that you can't see them is usually because of something to do with you, right? Your rushing and hurrying means that you don't slow down enough to stop and look for them properly. Other times, things remain invisible or unseen because the object is too small or because it's too far away and your eyesight isn't very good. But none of those are the reason that we can't see God. That we cannot see God is a universal human experience, right? You cannot see God and neither can I. John tells us in his gospel, no one has ever seen God. The Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was the first human being in space and he said that God was not visible even there. There's his picture. I looked, but I didn't see God. But we shouldn't expect him to be visible, even in space. Why? Because God can't be seen. He is invisible. God is invisible. But doesn't that strike you a weird thing to praise God for? Those two passages that Aileen just read for us from from 1 Timothy, they're like bookends in the letter. So one at the beginning of the letter and one at the end. And on both occasions, Paul breaks off mid-sentence into a doxology, praising and glorifying God for who he is. And in both passages, the attributes listed that he praises God for are almost exactly the same. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It's ironic though, isn't it, right? Most of the time, I don't even notice that invisibility is listed. I just read straight past it if it's not there. But when you linger long enough to see it, it's weird, isn't it? The first three, I understand. Of course, we praise God that he's the king. Of course we praise God that he's the everlasting one. Of course we praise God that he's the living one who cannot die. And more on that one in a few weeks' time. But the invisible one? How is that something to praise God for? Most of us, I suspect, would be more prone to think of God's invisibility as a problem rather than a reason for praise. Think of God's invisibility as almost an embarrassment, certainly a hindrance to belief in him. 
I don't know about you, but lots of my spiritual doubts are connected to God's invisibility. We worship a God whom we have not seen. And that's a problem, isn't it? It makes it hard for us. For our society, seeing is believing. So we find it hard to worship a God who is invisible because out of sight is out of mind. But the reason that God can't be seen is not for reason of proximity or distance or scale. It's not even because he's just really well camouflaged. That's good news, actually. You need to know God is not playing a cosmic game of hide and seek with you where he's just really good and really hard to find. No. God is invisible because it is the very nature of his being that he cannot be seen. God is not like us. We are material, bodily, physical people, but God, according to Jesus Christ, is spirit. God is spirit. In the words of the London Baptist Confession, the Lord our God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passion. Now, just think about the difference that makes. Right? Because of our bodies, we are constrained and confined by both time and space. And that's essential to our humanity. It's what it means to be human. And it's one of our greatest limitations, isn't it? That you and I, we can only be in one place at one time. Because we are here, none of us can be anywhere else. But that's not the case with God. Jeremiah says, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Because God has no body, because he is not physical, he doesn't have physical limitations. He's not confined to one time or one space. He is spirit. And so he is present everywhere all the time. And more than that, because God is spirit, not body, he cannot be divided up into bits. He has no parts. So God is not just present everywhere, but fully present everywhere. Again, we we struggle, don't we? We sometimes struggle to be present even in the one place that we are because we're made up of parts. And so our bodies can be in one place and our minds can be in another. We get distracted by screens, anxious thoughts, daydreams, so we can be physically present but emotionally absent. But God is not like that. God cannot be divided, and so he is never distracted. You'll never find God physically present but emotionally absent. No, no, no. You always have his full attention. He is, in the words of Psalm 8, mindful of us. So don't think of God like a gas, 
stretched out and diffused across the world as if he's 1% available in 100 places. As if there's a part of God in every place. No, 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 no. He is fully present everywhere, 100% available to 100% of places, 100% of the time. That's either the most comforting thing you've ever heard or the most unsettling thing you've ever heard. It's deeply comforting because in those times where you feel abandoned, anxious, alone, lost, lonely, you're not alone. God really is there. just as he promised. He is always with us. So when you lie alone, awake at night, remember, you're not alone. God is there. Eternal, immortal, invisible, and there. He sees you. He's always near. Every moment of your life is lived before the full glare of God's gaze. He sees everything. He misses nothing. But it's also quite disconcerting as well, isn't it? If there are parts of your life that you want to keep God out of, if there are sins that you want to keep hidden from him, well, the the truth is there's no room in your house, no part of your life, where God is not fully present. He knows everything about you. Nothing is hidden from him. But still, he loves you. God can't be seen because he is spirit. But I'm sure at this point, some of you are wondering, well, hang on a minute. What about all those times in the Old Testament when people did see God? Some of you are wondering, aren't you? Excellent question. So you're thinking, what about in Exodus 24? There, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai and saw the God of Israel. But keep reading the description, and what you discover is that what they saw was not so much God himself, but the pavement under his feet. You see that? Under his feet was something like a pavement. Don't tell us anything what they saw of God, only his feet and the pavement below. Because they saw God like you and I see the sun. Uh, if, If we look directly at the sun, our eyes will burn. You won't be seeing very much at all for the rest of your days. And so that's what they do they 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 see god but but not directly they know they've seen the lord like you and i know we've seen the sun but the most they can actually cope with seeing is looking at the pavement under god's feet it's the same for isaiah in the year that king uzziah died i saw the lord isaiah says high and exalted seated on the throne but again as the description continues isaiah tells us what he saw of the lord the train of his robe filled the temple above him were seraphim each with six wings it's as though isaiah can look around the lord 
He can look above the Lord at the seraphim and below the Lord at the train of his robe, but not directly at him. Which is precisely why the Lord tells Moses, Moses asked to see God's glory. And Moses tells him, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Why? Because, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, God is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. See, we are physically incapable of seeing God as he is because he doesn't have a material body. So light doesn't bounce off him into our eyes for us to see him. We can't see God physically because of something he doesn't have, a body. But we can't see God spiritually either because of something he does have, glory. We're spiritually incapable of seeing God as he is because he dwells in unapproachable light because God is like the sun. He is so blazingly glorious that sinners like us cannot behold him or approach him or we get burned up. That's why when Ezekiel has his vision of the Lord, he qualifies it three times. He says that what he saw was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. You can't get much more qualified than that, can you, when you're saying you saw the Lord? And even that was enough for Ezekiel to fall on his face. In the words of John Owen, God is not seen because we cannot bear the sight of him. The light of God in whom is no darkness forbids all access to him by any creature whatsoever. We who cannot behold the sun in its glory are too weak to bear the beams of infinite brightness. God can't be seen. He is invisible. He lives in unapproachable light. But then, in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the invisible God appeared. The invisible God appeared. The Apostle John wrote, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. The most supreme, the most glorious act of communication and revelation, the ultimate accommodation to our limited understanding, the one and only Son who is himself the incomparable, invisible God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, come, let us adore him. The God who does not have a body took a real physical human body to himself. One that meant he could be heard, seen, touched by us. The God who dwells in unapproachable light came to dwell in flesh among us. In Christ... 
the invisible God becomes visible and tangible to humanity. Oh, come, let us adore him. But why would he do that? Why would the great God humble himself to our level? Why would the incomparable God become comparable to us? Why would the unapproachable God become approachable for us? Why would the God who is beyond us become one of us? Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why the invisible God became visible. To rescue us from our alienation from God, to bring us home to him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Look, if you're not a Christian here this morning, that's the thing you have to get hold of. The invisible God whom you cannot see became visible in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ to save you, to bridge the gap between divinity and humanity so that we could be rescued, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God. But more than that, Jesus came to save us so that one day you and I might see. So that one day you and I might see God in all his unapproachable light and blazing glory. I said that 1 Timothy is basically structured around these two doxologies where Paul breaks off to praise God for the same attributes, that he's the king, that he's immortal, that he's invisible. But right in the middle of 1 Timothy is a poem about the mystery of the gospel. So you've got these two bookends, doxologies to the invisible God. And right in the middle is a poem about the mystery of the gospel that he, the living God, appeared in the flesh. At the heart of the letter, which is hemmed in on both sides by exalted cries of praise and blessing to the invisible God, Paul states something which is so familiar that it may have lost its awe for some of us. The invisible God appeared in the flesh. The God who is so great that he cannot be seen made himself visible. Oh, come, let us adore him. But there's more. Because as you may have noticed when Aileen read those passages to us, immediately before both of those doxologies are more references to the appearing of Christ. The whole letter is shaped around the two appearings of the invisible God. Paul begins the letter with the first appearing of Christ. He came into the world to save sinners and he praises God for being invisible. And then at the end of the letter, he does exactly the same thing. He ends the letter with the second appearing of Christ before praising God for being invisible. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, I charge you, keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. 
God, the blessed and only ruler, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is mortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. The invisible God became visible at his first coming to save sinners. And the invisible God will again be visible at his second coming to save his people and to make all things new. If you're a Christian, those two appearings are your life. We live every moment between those two appearings of God. Sometimes it can be hard to keep going as a Christian, can't it? Sometimes the invisible God cannot just seem invisible but absent, especially when you are suffering. Actually, even when life is good, it's a struggle to walk by faith and not by sight, isn't it? It's hard to keep living for an unseen king, an unseen kingdom, an unseen inheritance. But Paul wants to reassure you today. Jesus has appeared once, the invisible God made visible, real, solid, visible, tangible. And that is your guarantee that he will appear again, visibly, tangibly, gloriously. Augustine said, faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of that faith is to see what you believe. One day, brothers and sisters, your faith will turn to sight and we will behold our God. Come, let us adore him. Let's pray before we sing. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Thank you, Father, so much. One day you will answer that prayer and we will behold you, our God. We will see you in all your glorious, unapproachable light. Thank you that we will see you. Amen. We're going to sing.